Well, it has been quite a week already here, Jordan Helly, as uh, the University of Hawaii football program has been somewhat rocked by the announcement of some departures, right? You have among the names who have decided to leave the program, enter the transfer transfer portal or otherwise, Kai Kaneshiro, a starter in the defensive secondary the last couple of years, Day-Day Hunter, the starting running back, and then, of course, Shevin Cordero, who is a four-year veteran quarterback, two years of eligibility remaining, a hometown kid out of St. Louis uh, with the idea that he is sort of the college version of the franchise quarterback for the University of Hawaii decides to enter the transfer portal. Uh, His dad, Leon, saying in a newspaper interview that it is not because he is trying to go to a bigger or better program would not elaborate further than that. Uh, But it has led a lot to the imagination of the fans and those who cover this program. And there has, I think, been a sentiment that some of these moves, as well as some other things that are being said on social media, are indicators of there being some unrest within the program. Uh, Yesterday, something pretty remarkable happened, and it was Daryl McBride Jr., uh, along with the help of R.J. Hollis, but but Daryl himself really kind of getting this thing going, uh, opening up a Twitter spaces chat about University of Hawaii football and the state of UH football, and this done really in direct response to the announcement of Chevin Cordero and what that may indicate or represent. We were on it for a little bit, just listening in, right? Just eavesdropping. Uh, There were up to 400 people that had logged on to take in some of the discussion of former players, current players who gave very direct testimony in some cases as to why they themselves had decided to transfer out. Kai Kaneshiro was one of them. Aaron Cephas, a receiver who also expressed some dissatisfaction with the current situation uh, as it pertains to the coaching regime. And so we are going to try to walk this line here of being as responsible as possible to the fact that, hey, look, we are on the outside looking into the program. But we are going to call upon some people who have uh, a little bit more of a direct line into the heart of the program. One of them being Daryl McBride Jr. himself, the former linebacker who spent three years at the University of Hawaii from 2010 to 2012, actually played through the transition of the coach Greg McMacken regime to the Norm Chow coaching regime. Uh, And the guy who got that conversation started yesterday, uh, we're going to hear from him. We're also going to talk with, because we got to, in an emergency situation like this, we got to talk with our resident football guru, Rich Miano. But uh, yeah, Jordan, uh, this has been wild. How did the news of Chevin hit you? It was, it was quite the the bombshell, right? I mean, we're four days removed from Hawaii's best showing, I would argue on in the Todd Graham era. Like they looked really good on the road at elevation. Like all the things that usually lead to doom for Hawaii teams on the road. Like they looked great against Wyoming, like arguably even better than the bowl game against Houston in that, in that New Mexico bowl last December. So it it was just such a drastic change of events. Right. And, and so I, I think the response elicited by that or the reaction from fans, from players, from alums, like in a way wasn't surprising because I think that would have been the one thing to really set off alarm bells, like really would have, right? If you're quarterback, the local kid who has been here for four years, who as Christian Shimabuku of KHON put it, kind of was the light at the end of the tunnel for a program looking to kind of navigate its way out of the doldrums 
uh, for a while that led to ultimately a Mountain West Conference championship game appearance, obviously with him splitting time with Cole McDonald. But to have him leave, that I think would have been the thing that really all of a sudden, look, it's like, look, emergency sirens going off, right? It's like, okay, what's going on here, mm-hmm. um, right? To, to really kind of spark the conversation. And it was really interesting, the organic nature after after Daryl McBride put this out on Twitter. I've never joined a Twitter space before. Insane. I didn't really know how it worked. Uh, I just clicked on it. And next thing I know, I was listening to some very impassioned conversation from alums, from players, from guys who just recently left the program to guys who had played under previous head coaches um, to, to, to some fans <laughs> at the end of that thing. Like it was, it was really interesting, organic. And, and I think brings up the larger conversation right and, and that's what we try to do today and and, and try to navigate it where you, we don't know exactly sure. right no, nobody really does unless you're inside that building and so it just I think warrants questions being asked and I think that's what we try to do yeah because fans can react passionately as they tend to do sometimes maybe overblowing certain situations uh, but I think as as Rich Miano will say a little later on in the podcast episode uh, there is at least some smoke here, right? And, and so what is that? Where is that coming from? What does that represent? And how serious of an issue is this potentially as far as some of the possible dissension between either parts of the, the roster themselves in the locker room or dissension between players and members of the coaching staff? And then the follow-up question of, you know, what can be done and so, again, we're going to try to not draw too many conclusions based on the evidence that that we have here. But we are reacting to the reaction to the announcement of Chevin Cordero transferring out because that's a big loss. And if anybody is sort of designed as the, the prototype University of Hawaii football player, right, that the state can can gather around and, and can root on like Chevin Cordero is it right he was this this state championship winning St. Louis quarterback star player uh, and now he's he's gone and um, to lose a player of that ilk and it for it to at least uh, based on some of the accounts not be due to the motivation of just trying to play at a power five program or something that is that is apparently according to his dad not the motivation um, then it makes you ask more questions as to, all right, why uh, does he want to leave? What is the issue? Uh, and then you throw in that conversation that took place on Twitter spaces yesterday. And it seems to indicate that there is some, some PVK there. So we will start this uh, episode by going ahead and playing our discussion with Daryl McBride Jr. Uh, the guy who uh, ignited uh, that pretty incredible, almost fascinating uh, experience on Twitter yesterday. So let's go ahead and play that. All right, Daryl, it was great talking with you. And uh, well, yesterday I was listening to you for uh, several hours uh, as you and, and RJ Hollis, I guess, uh, ignited this Twitter spaces chat and conversation that grew into this thing where nearly 400 people, former players, current players, UH administrators, uh, staff members, fans, I mean, the, the whole allotment, uh, people were participating, at least listening to some of the conversation. Uh, and a lot of it was very direct. A lot of it was very pointed. There was some dissatisfaction that was created. Uh, but I wanted to ask you just how that came about. It, it seemed clear that that was in part, at least uh, in reaction to the news that Chevin Cordero was transferring out, which a lot of people have taken as sort of an indication that there is some unrest 
dare we say, or, or Pilikia within the program. How did that, how did that come about yesterday? So once I seen the Shevin uh, transfer news, I went on Twitter and I went to go look for any spaces talking about UH football. There was none. So what I did was I started a space. Uh, I invited alumni. So originally it just started out as us alumni just discussing the state of the program and losing a player uh, like Shevin who decided to stay home, uh, what impact that could have on the school. Because this is going to be a ripple effect you know, for years, right? You're starting quarterback. Um, and then, you know, RJ came in and I guess a lot of people seen RJ uh, speaking in there. And, you know, then we started to get some fans coming in and then, you know, we started to see a lot of the players start coming in. So, you know, we kind of had an idea on what was happening within the program, but us as players, when we're in school, we know we can't say too much, right? So, you know, we're done. Me and RJ are done. We're just speaking off the cuff, you know, no censorship, you know, it's just straight to how it is. And, you know, players got in to speak what was going on in, within the program. So what do you think was was accomplished there or, or was there anything that was enlightening to you? Because, you know, we've heard murmurings and, and you as an alum, I'm sure the discussion with former and current players takes place and you hear some of what's happening. Uh, but what stood out to you about what was discussed some of the information that was transmitted pretty directly from, from several guys. Um, I think it gave fans and administration straight to the point insight. Um, I don't think that players feel as though they have a voice um, in regards to, you know, them speaking up if the school or, you know, football coaches will revoke their scholarships. So a lot of kids are thinking about that. So they didn't want to speak up on that, but for the ones that did, um, they gave us clear insight. And I think that school, you know, school administration now know that, hey, this is what's really going on within the program and fan speculation is right. Um, so I'm not going to blame it on the media, uh, but, you know, the media, sends, you know, tends to sugarcoat things sometimes and, and, you know, beat around the bush about it. But, you know, I feel like that conversation yesterday that took place we're straight to the point and everybody got the root of what's going on. It, it seemed, it seemed pretty organic, Daryl, just the way that, that everything sort of played out yesterday. I mean, it, it, did you have any, any imagination that, that, that it would turn into what it turned into? Like I said, I know <laughs> it was just alums and we were just talking about, you know, us being former players and us, you know, playing collegiate football and other guys coming in there, you know, we could speak on what goes on within the program. Um, but when you're playing, you know, you're not going to say too much. But after you're done, you're like, hey, we kind of got a gist of what's really going on and kind of wanted to give the fans that did come in some insight on, hey, these are the things that could potentially be happening. But when the players came in and just, you know, spoke on it and those players entering the transfer portal, like Day Day who came in and, and, and spoke, um, you know, he gave his reasonings and, you know, Kai gave his reasonings on why. And it was pretty clear to why they were leaving. And, you know, we just hope that that gave them a voice. They reached out to a couple of us, me and RJ, and, and thanked us for allowing them to have a space where they can, you know, let their voices be heard. And I think we accomplished that. Are you comfortable sharing, like, what, what those guys shared as to some of their reasonings why, why they decided to leave the program? So... 
I'll say this from the majority of the players that we got to speak. Uh, a lot of people are um, unhappy. Um, the head coach, they, you know, they, they praise the assistant coaches a lot. Um, but the head guy, and I'm not here to, you know, bash Graham or anything because I don't know him personally. Um, but, you know, the way he talks to his players, uh, this, the team feels as though there's a lot of uh, disconnect amongst each other coaches to the players, coaches, the coaches, you know, and that disconnect doesn't, doesn't work with UH football. You know, I've been a part of that and, you know, I've known every coach, you know, I would hang out with my coaches and they didn't have that connection. Um, but yeah, you know, people's not, people not being happy. Uh, the disconnect players, not even knowing who players were by week seven, you know, that's, that's huge, you know, and, them being separated from scholarship players, the non-scholarship players, um, that takes effects on these kids. Yeah, I mean, it is a it, it is a certain culture, right? That that comprises this program. It is it is unlike other programs because of its geography, uh, because of uh, some of the challenges that it has to face due to that geography and, and otherwise. And so, you know, I've always heard players like you, uh, and even some of the players who were sharing. Uh, some of that dissatisfaction yesterday, uh, they still referred to their teammates as brothers. It was still about the brotherhood. Uh, and yet, as you alluded to, that was one of the more surprising things to me, uh, that the pods that were created for different units and, and different groups of players to work out with one another and, and practice with one another. I know COVID fed into some of this, but uh, it seemed to create this disconnect within the ranks of the roster and, and players, like you said, who would be passing each other in the hallway and they wouldn't even necessarily know each other's names and, and, and things like that. And, and to me, that's, if, if that is more than just a result of COVID and some of the restrictions and some of the, uh, you know, preemptive actions that had to take place due to that, uh, then that's a sign of, of some, some issues with regard to the culture within the program. Well, being, you know, I was there with Coach Mack and, you know, we transitioned to Norm Child, but, you know, we always had pods, you know, in regards to your wake, your, your workout group and, you know, who's doing, you know, conditioning at the same time and, you, you know, you guys are switching off, but never to the extent where I didn't know my teammates until August 1st. Never. I knew all of my teammates. And even if I didn't know how to say their names, I learned how to pronounce their names. You know, it's, it's, it's different, you know, coming from the mainland to, to Hawaii. Um, you know, you come in there thinking that it's this way and it's really not. So you have to adapt to the culture and, and embrace it. And right now, just my honest opinion, I don't think that that culture is really being embraced by the coaching staff. And I'm not saying everyone, because mm -hmm. I know Abe has done a great job. He's been there through three different head coaches. Uh, but if you can't embrace that culture, it's going to be hard for you to win the fans over and it's going to be hard for you to win the alums over. What did you experience when you did transition from Mac to, to Norm Chow? Because uh, that, that was that was a bit of a paradigm shift when it comes to, to the styles and personalities of two coaches. You know, Coach Mac, you know, he was a leader amongst men. Um, you know, me being a defensive player, you know, Love Coach Aranda. You know, Coach Aranda didn't say much, you know, all the time. But, you know, Coach Aranda, you know, Coach Miano, who brought me in, is 
probably the main reason I only reason I went to UH. And then, you know, I, I hung out with players like Coach Rolo and Coach Smith on the you know offensive side of the ball. So I got to know those guys. Um, and then when the Norm Chow era came and um, I got to meet Coach Rosh and Coach, um, you know, uh, Lewis Powell and, you know, Coach Tuyoti stayed over as well. I love Coach Tuyoti. Um, but, yeah, those guys were real personable guys. But everyone else that came in, it, it was kind of like, you know, like the players alluded to, there was a disconnect, you know, and it was, hey, we're going to treat it like A, B, and C, you know, is it's kind of like he tried to come in with this mindset of how USC was ran and he tried to change the culture of Hawaii. So that's why I think the success didn't really translate. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I think we went like six and seven that season and they let go of coach Mack and, you know, we went to this, you know, West coast offense, you know, and from a running shoot and it didn't really work. And you've seen that over time, it didn't work. And then they transitioned from norm to Rolo back to the run and shoot. And you see the state came alive. People was bought in and then it goes to Graham. And though COVID played a major part in it, it just, it just isn't the same. Yeah. So I, I guess that would be the follow-up question is, you know, how much of this might be just the fact that, you know, if it were, if it were any coach taking over and, and from a Nick Rolovich run staff, right. Nick Rolovich, as we know, he's, he's, he's a unique type of, of person and, and, and a unique and, and very sort of fun loving player friendly personality. Uh, and you, you go to a different regime. How much of this is just the fact that it is a different coach and regime or how much do you maybe hang it on the hook that it is this different coach and regime? That's a good question. Um, I'll go back to just the norm and the, the Todd, you know, comparison. And then you go to the Mac and Rolo, you know, or like four coaches in probably 10 years or something like, like a decade. And then, you know, let me take it back to even June Jones. Look at the type of offenses we ran. Look at the type of coaches they were. You know, when you, when you meet those coaches, you don't think, oh, this coach he looks like he's not, you know, personable. You can't walk up to him and, and speak, you know, and you just the the vibe you just get from, you know, those coaches, you know, it just isn't the same. And I think kids can sense when a coach is coming in and he he buys into the culture. Like you look at June Jones, you look at Coach Mack, you look at uh, Coach Rolo. Those guys are embedded to Hawaii. They Hawaii is a part of them. Right. And they embrace the culture and kids believe what they say. Kids will want to play for coaches who've known the culture, who've played there, who've been there. But when you get these, you know, outside guys coming in and me being from the mainland, I can see this. You're getting these outside guys coming in. It just doesn't work because in my mindset, when I'm looking as an alum, they get a guy from Texas or Arizona or wherever. My my thought is, oh, he, this is a stepping stone. He's not going to be here that long. So it just doesn't work with, with what Hawaii has done. Yeah, there, I guess from, from your perspective, right, as an alum, how, how do you envision, you know, it sounded like you guys got the, this really tight group, right, that wants to see the program succeed 
you know, that, that, that still bleeds to see this program succeed. What kind of role can the alums have, if at all, you know, in, in terms of, you know, whether, whether it's direct with the coaching staff or the program in general, just how do you envision that? Because it, it sounded like, you know, whether it was you, whether it was RJ, J.R. Hemsley, Adam Leonard, who spoke um, yesterday on, on the Twitter space, just, just this desire, you know, to, to help in some way, to, to help this program succeed. But, you know, I, I think fair to ask you as an alum, just from, from that point of view, what, what, what kind of role do you envision that, that this alumni base can, can help provide? I think administration needs to do a better job of reaching out. And if it's not administration, it's the, the coaching staff. Um, or when alums call in and those coaches need to be available or should be available or make themselves available to, to speak to the alums. Um, we've been there. We've played there. We understand, you know, how to succeed there. Uh, and I feel like, you know, if that's not done, you're now, you're now creating a disconnect amongst the players, you know, the alums. And one thing I don't want to happen is, oh, don't only reach out for the alumni when you're needing money. You know, <laughs> when it comes to, you know, where we could help, help mentor these guys so they're not getting in trouble or, you know, give advice, come in and, and speak publicly to these kids. Uh, I think we're all for that if somebody reaches out. And I've reached out plenty of times um, and not just within this coaching staff prior as well. And I'll tell you this, when I will reach out to coach Smith or coach Rolo, they'll get back to me. You know, I'll reach out to this coaching staff. I don't hear back too much. So, you know, um, I feel as though the administration and not just the coaching staff needs to do a better job of, of keeping the alumni, you know, in the program from a from a player's standpoint you know is taking away what you heard yesterday in particular kind of in this open forum um you know I, I i don't know what kind of conversations you've had had in private or anything like that not not asking you to to touch on those but but is are, are there things you would like to see you talk about sort of buying into the culture some of these kinds of things but is there things you you feel that you know could be sort of maybe not easily, but, but um, would be achievable in terms of kind of shifting things around from, from within the locker room? I think coaches need to make themselves uh, personable. I know a lot of players said that, you know, their coach would invite, you know, only starters to his house. And, you know, so things like, you know, creating a leadership council that way, you know, having some, some guys that can go to the coach and express their, their issues with them and just seeing how they can, you know, fix things. That is probably priority. Number one is a leadership council Two, I'm not sure what type of funding out funding is out there. Um, but on Twitter yesterday, I just played around with the idea of coaches hiring a football retention coach, right? Bringing those kids in uh, that's on the cusp of transferring because the transfer portal is a dangerous place now. Um, you you can really get stuck in there and kids can lose scholarships that way and not have a home. So you don't want kids to leave a program, but also have to understand that, hey, this kid may want to play and everyone has their own reasons, but they need to do something within that locker room, whether it's more team bonding, whether it's coaches, you know, actually getting to know the players, because I feel like that's not what it is. 
if players are telling me that there's a disconnect, that means they do not feel comfortable with their coaches. Um, their coaches don't really know who they are as people outside of football players. And that's one thing going from Coach Mack team to Coach Charles team. I had a connection with Coach Tuyoti because uh, he was my position coach. And Coach Powell, when I transitioned over to Russian, he was my position coach. And Coach Phil Rosher, you know, the guy was just a happy-go-lucky guy. You know, he invited us for, cook, you know, cookouts at his house. That guy was just, you know, he was one of us. You know what I mean? So that is what's missing. So leadership, council, retention, personnel, um, and you know, I'll say it right now. That locker room is is really divided right now, and maybe it's time to go in a different direction. I mean, they got rid of Coach Mack for going six and seven. I don't, you know, the situation that you know was going on within the locker room. You can't have a lost locker room, and players are saying you're going to, you know, more players are going to leave. It's not going to help anything. Yeah, well, it is a crazy week, right after what was a really positive conclusion to the the regular season with that win in Laramie and then just days later all of a sudden you know things have uh, have have come a bit undone uh what I found remarkable yesterday was just the passion behind all of the testimonials right uh on your part for sure uh, on the part of several other alums uh on the part of several current players even some of the fans that chimed in uh, it showed an interest in the program and it, it showed an extreme desire to see the program succeed. And this is a very tenuous time in the history of this program because of COVID, because of the debacle that was Aloha Stadium and, and the uncertainty that lies there. Uh, so to me, that was what I was really awestruck by was uh, the fact that, that you, in this instance, took it upon yourself to lead this discussion of people who are all in some ways like-minded, at least to the effect of they want to see University of Hawaii football. They want to see it thrive and they want to see it prosper. And, and I thought that that was pretty incredible. So the one, the one fear that I have and other alums have is uh, the death of our program. That will hurt. Seeing what's happening to the program now hurts. Players enter the transfer portal every year, but at this magnitude with key starters this early from the, is not, we're not planning, you know, the SEC or Pac-12, we're planning the Mountain West. So you got to think, you know, University of Idaho used to be in our division when we were in the WAC. Now they're playing D1 double A. You know, we have a stadium right now that fills 9,000 people. How are we going to keep the football program sustainable? That's the fear that we either are going to go down to Division One AA, or they're just going to dismiss the entire program. That's the fear. That's what we want to get in people's minds that, hey, this is a reality that can happen. And we don't want that to happen. And I took, I'll volunteer to help out wherever I need to help out. But I'm not the only uh, alum that feels that way. Yeah, no, you're right. I think this is an existential challenge. Um, and this is a really sensitive time in, in the history of, of, of this program. 
we really appreciate you giving us some time. I know you dedicated a lot to, to this topic yesterday. And so for you to sit down once again with us, I, I can't thank you enough. Uh, you're in California and you're doing some coaching these days as well, or you have been, right? Yeah. So um, I've been coaching. I've been a defensive coordinator at a school for about two and a half years, counting the COVID year because we had to play in the spring. And then I just became a head coach this uh, past season um, and, you know, looking to just extend my coaching resume to probably end up one day at a college someday, maybe Hawaii. I don't know. <laughs> well, that would be a wonderful full circle uh, equation there for you. Um, hey, we appreciate it, man. All right. Sounds good. Good talking to you guys. All right. Take care. All right. Big thanks to, to Daryl McBride Jr. for making some time for us. Uh, how did that hit you? I mean, again, he, he, he posed some pretty hard, direct, tough questions here once again, Jordan. He really did. And I think, you know, it was great to talk to him because he was sort of the, the spearhead of yesterday's conversation. And I think you hear from him, right? The, the passion of these alums, like these guys care deeply about their program. And I think, you know, it may sound, you know, a little chicken, little sky is falling, but I, I, I think it is very real for a lot of people, especially folks who played in this program. Um, the future viability of football at the University of Hawaii just with everything going on. And again, I think it's fair to point out like Telegram's 500 through two years. Like it, the, the, they haven't lost a majority of their games. And, and so that I think bears repeating, but you know, I, th I don't think it, it, it's not to say that this sense of real concern from, from folks very connected to this program isn't legitimate. Like, I, I don't think that feeling is something that should just be poo pooed and be like, oh, these guys are, you know, they, they alarmists and all those kinds of things. Like, I, I think there are things to point to. It's like, look, they are very much invested in making sure that they are willing to fight for this program uh, to make sure that it doesn't just go by the wayside or doesn't drop down a division or something like that. Right. Yeah. I, I um, think and, we can I think all be, that from them. I think we can all be behind that, that general sentiment, right. Uh, this program in its current state, this is their legacy, right? It's the legacy of these alums over the history, the vast history of the program, decades upon decades, generations of players. Uh, and so to see that passion, I think, was something that was actually uplifting to me at a time where I think everybody was a little disappointed to hear the news that Chevin Cordero is leaving. Uh, I think there was at least a, a positivity that came out of the fact that it was such an impassioned discussion yesterday about this thing, this wonderful, beautiful thing that is University of Hawaii football and how best to protect it. Uh, and, and if there needs to be change or if there needs to be an adjustment somewhere within it, uh, how best to accomplish that. And so uh, I thought that that part was was certainly uh, uplifting, the silver lining, if you will, to some of the negativity here this week. Uh, with that said, uh, it is an emergency episode. And so we got to talk with our resident football guru, Rich Miano, uh, spent the season in the booth calling uh, University of Hawaii games on Spectrum Sports pay-per-view with him. You were part of the pregame, halftime, and postgame crew. Uh, so that was a lot of fun to be able to experience that with you guys. So let's uh, go ahead and, and play our chat with Rich. All right, and so we're talking with our resident football guru, Rich Miano. He's a popular guy this week, obviously doing a host of interviews because it has been pretty earth-shattering, the news received out of Manoa uh, with a couple of standout starters who have decided to enter the transfer portal. Uh, the obvious 
uh, headline, though, uh, revolved around Chevin Cordero. When you have your uh, four-year veteran quarterback, an incumbent starter, the college version of a franchise QB deciding that uh, he's going to go elsewhere, uh, and his dad quoted in the newspaper saying that it has nothing to do with his wanting to broaden his horizons or go to a bigger or more name-brand program, uh, it just begs a lot of questions. So first off, Rich, thanks for joining us again. Always a pleasure. It's been uh, an awesome season working with you covering the UH football games. Uh, but I just want to ask you, when you first heard about the Chevin Cordero announcement, there have been some murmurings, but how did it hit you when it became official? Yeah, no, you're exactly right. You know, we've heard these rumors for multiple weeks and uh, frustrating wouldn't be the word when the final announcement, it was more like a barrage of Max Holloway uh, kicks and punches that just seemed to continue to happen in this program. And it just, you know, the day they hunt or the day before, to me, maybe the best back since Alex Green and the guy that potentially can play on Sunday, uh, you know, that was a big loss. But then everybody said, hold your breath, because the guy that's going to be the glue to this offense, to this program is Chevron Cordero. If they lose him and I'm with that group that if they lose him, this is the biggest blow in University of Hawaii history. Yeah, the transfer portal is uh, in its gestation uh, stages, but it's a huge loss. Yeah, I, I mean, clearly. Clearly it is. And I think the issue now, the automatic question that is asked is, all right, why is he transferring out? Like what has happened? Uh, and we're on the outside looking in. And so we're only privy to a fraction of the information. And we may never hear the whole story from any of the parties that are involved. But there seem to be clues, certainly based on what Chevin's dad said, there seem to be clues that there was a, a bit of a disconnect. Uh, I think you used the word in an interview with Rob DeMello, uh, an unhappiness uh, even. So I, what what are you hearing or, or what are you on your end sort of piecing together based on, on what's been said? Yeah, you know, unhappiness is definitely seems to be emanating out of this program, but I think culture as well. And when I talk about culture, it's not just the local boys, you know, all the, the walk-on program, which seems to have been kind of brushed to the side and uh, not really... Uh, authenticated are not really uh, valued like it has been in the past. Uh, it seems like there's, you know, and, and I said this on Bo's football final a few weeks ago, if you're on the offensive side of this ball, you've got to be frustrated. You got to be disappointed. Are you being taught schematics and mechanics and techniques? What will hopefully get you to the highest level of your genetic predisposition or for most people, they dream of playing the national football or at least having success. And when you walk into that offensive locker room and you see this offensive line and you see Nick Mardner and you see Calvin Turner and you see Jared Smart and you see Day Day Hunter and you see Chevin Cordero, you go like, dude, we can put up 50 on just about everybody we play. We can be a top 10 passing team nationally scoring offense, um, total offense. And, you know, these guys have seen that just a couple of years ago with Rolo. They witnessed it throughout the June Jones era. And now you have an offense for the most part that's sputtered continuously that the nation in turnovers, the penalties, uh, the discombobulation in terms of play calling, and then the Bo Graham moving up to the box. And then Chevin seemed like he was free. He seemed like he was spinning the ball, making quick decisions. And if you looked at those last two games of the season, I think you saw the MVP of this conference. I think you saw the ceiling is limitless. And then when you have your franchise quarterback decide to leave a program, the state of Hawaii, his girlfriend's here, his family's here. He made that commitment to us. I can't imagine, uh, other than a Colt Brennan leaving years ago, 
a bigger loss to this program. It comes on the heels of Day-Day Hunter also announcing that he's leaving, right? So you've got your starting backfield in all of that. You've got a number of other guys going, some various levels of the depth chart, basically, right, Rich? And so is it the tip of the iceberg as we look at it? I think that's the fear for a lot of folks, right, is that, look, with the rumored departure of, of Cordero, your quarterback, to go along with some of these other effects, right? And it's it's not unique to the University of Hawaii. You know, you've got starting quarterbacks transferring elsewhere. You've got, you know, pro high profile guys. You've got guys, you know, four years into a program looking to to upgrade, if you will. Like, like that's not unique. Um, but I guess what what makes it different about Hawaii's situation and, and the unique situation that this program is in everything that goes into it and the fact that it's, you know, a local kid who comes here, it's the St. Louis connection. It's the quarter, like all of that, that goes into it, I guess, all of these complex layers, what makes it different than, you know, Martinez transferring from Nebraska or any of these other guys who have spent, you know, a number of years aided by the, the free COVID year, if you will, looking to go someplace else. Well, I, I think, you know, the, there's rumors and there's innuendos and there's all kinds of stories, but you saw Aaron Cephas, you saw some of the uh, current players, you saw some past players that know current players talking about the culture and, and uh, how the lack of respect for this culture, whether that's a local culture, whether that's a football culture, you know, we could have a whole show on that. But, but I don't want to put the blame 100% on Todd Grand naming his son the offensive coordinator, surrounding himself with Abe Elamemia, Marcus Davis, and Elite Terry, who are first-year offensive coaches and not really having a guru and the lack of success on that side of the ball. But, but I do think that's a huge part of this equation, but I do want to spread the wealth, so to speak, on David Ige. I want to spread the wealth on the Department of Health, the Attorney General's Office, and everybody else that was involved in having no fans. You know, being kicked out of your home, Aloha Stadium, uh, the season tickets dwindling, you know, when you finally could have an attendance, had 5,000 people on there, and maybe 1,000 were students that get in free based upon their student, you know, fees and of that nature. So you have a program that is, is really uh, disintegrating or decimated uh, because of some of these decisions. And then you have lack of success. And when I talk a lack of success, you know, this coach had gifts and I'm talking about Christmas gifts greater than maybe Santa Claus from Rolos 10 and 14 because when you look at Codero, Turner, Hunter, Mardner, Bethley, Musao, Cortez Davis, Jonah Laulu, Blessman Ta'ala, there's more than that and these are football players that expected success at the highest level. You know last year truncated season five and four win against Houston that was all good enough but they knew going into the locker room this year that this talent was undeniable. And I haven't even talked about special teams. Special teams, and, and I'll challenge somebody to say there was a worse special teams unit in the nation in terms of block punts, in terms of muff kicks, uh, field, touchdowns on field goals and kickoff returns and uh, you know all, all those other areas, net punting, whatever it is. If it wasn't for Halverson, it wasn't for Shipley. I mean, this would have been a really horrible special teams unit as well. I'll pay to watch this defense, Jordan. I'll pay to watch schematically, technically, whatever else. So it's not just an indictment on Todd Graham, but it is an indictment on the offense. It is an indictment on special teams. It is an indictment of the state of Hawaii and the care for this program. Where is the money stepping up to make this a first-class program? And I'm talking about 
banks and I'm talking about big donors. And I'm talking about people that actually say they care about this program. But where is the follow through? Where is the backing? Because right now, this program is on life support. And I'm not just talking about football for all you people out there that think that football doesn't make money. It does make money and it supports non-revenue producing sports. And if this program continues to dissipate in terms of season uh, ticket holders in football, and it's, it's a scary proposition for the future of our children, because I think this is a necessity for our children to dream and have uh, division one sports. Yeah, and I, th- I think it's fair to bring all that up, right? Because I don't know all of the intricate details, but the, the fact that, you know, they they were hiring freezes at the state and all of this kinds of stuff. Right. And, and what exactly was Todd Graham allowed to do in terms of hiring a special teams coordinator, right. Hiring assistants. Like it, he was, it was tough. Don't get me wrong. Um, and, and so that, that factors into it quite a bit. Right. And, and so with all of those factors, right. The, the, um, the fact that this program, as you put it, you know, there, there's this doom and gloom, I think, feeling that changed drastically after the Wyoming win on Saturday and then Chevin's announcement just four days later, where it really seems like this program is at a significant crossroads, right? Where everything is going against it. Public sentiment, literal public support, dollars, everything, stadium, you name it, everything. And so the people in charge, right? Whether it's David Matlin, whether it's Todd Graham, whoever you want to kind of put the the onus on, like they, they got to get it right, right? Like the, the, at, at this point, like it has, they, they have to, the, the margin of error is so thin that, that you can't afford, I guess I'm saying, I don't know if that's your opinion, Rich, to, to yeah. really get it wrong, to, to have a situation where you've got this massive swell of player discontent, of fan discontent. Like you've already got all of these other things working against you that that is more or less out of your control. And so the things you can control, like it, it you gotta you gotta almost hit a home run. Otherwise, it, it seems like we're we're really in dire straits. Yeah, yeah. And let me expand upon that, Jordan, because in recruiting, right, there's two things that Hawaii can sell. They can sell winning which wasn't the case this year. And they can sell Hawaii because they can't sell attendance. They can't sell facilities, apparel, contract, training table, all the things you talked about that have gotten cut. So, you know, let's back up a little bit and say that Todd Graham has been placed uh, between a rock and a hard place in terms of money, possibility, facilities, all these other uh, tangible things. But he was left with a great football team so they can win. Right. And can he sell Hawaii? I don't know. And, and, you know, does he love Hawaii? Can he sell it? You know, you look back to June Jones, Nick Rolovich, the successful coaches, you know, they had a passion for Hawaii. They had a love for Hawaii. There was a wife, there were kids, there were careers here in Hawaii, whatever else. I'm not saying you have to be a local boy. I'm not saying all of that thing. But, you know, when you put together your staff, right, is there a Ron Lee, a Cowley, a George Lumpkin, uh, you know, is there a Brian Smith, a Craig Stutzman, what else? Look at this coaching staff when we talk about culture. Abe Elamimian has changed from a defensive back coach to a first-year running back coach. Victor Santa Cruz got his title of defensive coordinator or whatever it was, co-coordinator last year, taken away. Now he coaches defensive ends. Jacob Yoro is a heck of a coach, and you don't hear about him, and he's doing a phenomenal job with Darius Mosel, whatever else. That's what I'm talking about, the culture of Hawaii. We don't necessarily have to have local coaches. We don't necessarily have local recruits, but we are proud when they do well. We are proud when we can sell Hawaii because we care about an art. We bleed green, whatever else. If it's just a coach that's passing through, good luck. 
because to the time you figure out the politics, the time you figure out the administration, the time you figure out what you don't have, which I hear all the time, you know, chartered flights and, you know, training tables and apparel contracts and facilities, it's too late. It's too late. So, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, uh, I'm pretty passionate about this subject, and I'm not saying that we need to make a head coaching change, but I think if David Lassner, if David Matlin don't know that something's going on in this program, they need to investigate. Because, again, this program is bigger than all of us, and it's more important than most people can imagine. Yeah, I think what you guys are, are describing, it, this is a very sort of existential equation right now that the University of Hawaii Athletics program is facing. Uh, and it seems to be the consensus reaction to the news of these particular players who have decided to depart from the program, namely Shevin Cordero, uh, that those are indicators of dissatisfaction within the program, uh, dare I say dissension within the program. Uh, do we need to be careful as to how we read into that? Is there a possibility that there is an overreaction in response to the departure of Shevin? Or do you think that by and large, what many of the fans on social media and otherwise have presented as a sign that there is a little bit of Pili Kia right now in the program, do you think that that has merit? How, how do we view that? How do we walk that very difficult line, particularly as people who are on the outside of the program looking in? Yeah, it's a real precarious line, right? And, you know, you're straddling that thing. And if one foot's, you know, too close to that line and it's about to jump over, you, you're in a perilous state, so to speak. So, you know, when you're Dave Matlin, right, every single team has what they call end of the season reports. Every player talks about their experience as an athlete, especially the seniors as they're leaving. Dave Matlin should get involved with those seniors and see what their take is, as well as the rest of the underclassmen, right? And find out why these guys, it's almost like an exit interview when you talk about any corporation in America, right? And then you go, let's talk to the athletic trainers. Let's talk to the student service people. Let's talk to the maintenance people. How are these people being treated? What is their reflection of this program and the leadership of Todd Graham and, and, and David Matlin? And, and, you know, that's why it's, I'm not saying it has to be an independent study, but it has to be something that David Lastner has to really be concerned about, again, because you're talking about a program that's already losing millions of dollars before COVID and then COVID hit and then you're losing millions more. Now your attendance is dwindling. And, and you know, anyone that thinks that that's not a sign when you open it up, finally, sure, you can't bring your kids. Sure, you're only drinking bottled water. But come on, 9,000 people years ago under a direction of a program that's kind of uh, ascending uh uh, up, you get you you pack in that place where people are in the parking lot, looking over, trying to get a view. People are on the fences, trying to get into that. That football hasn't died in Hawaii, and we've got to make sure that this program is going in the right direction. So, yeah, there could be this. You know, there's always going to be players, Kano, right? That mm -hmm. are unhappy. Yes. They're not playing. They're a backup quarterback. They're whatever else. They, you know. But you have to do a deep dive into this. You have to do exit meetings with multiple people. And you better do it as quick as possible because structural things, whether it's changing the offensive coordinator, whether it's bringing in some type of consultant, whether it's, you know, more than that, less than that, I think the fans and the players need an announcement soon that this is actually something that is happening and not at Hawaii speed. 
I'm talking about we need to do this quickly because I think there is enough concern uh, to, to get moving on something of that nature. Yeah, I, I can understand that. Uh, almost a, a bit more of an exposure of the program, so to speak, right? A, a little bit more uh, of a, a clarity for the fans and the would-be supporters of the program uh, because you don't want to lose the sentiment of the fans and their passion, right? As you mentioned, they have not been allowed to gather in mass numbers to support this program in person. And so it is all the more challenging to maintain that connection. And so uh, I do think uh, what you are talking about is, is, is important. Um, to that end, you know, I, I was asking about whether or not there would be a tendency to overreact, right? We in the media fans, we tend to make mountains out of molehills, right, in situations like this. But you have to then throw as a complement to the narrative that chat that was on Twitter spaces yesterday where you had current and former players who, in, in at least a few cases, they expressed their dissatisfaction with the situation within the program. Uh, there were a few players that were much more direct about their dissatisfaction with the coaching staff. Uh, and like you said, there are always going to be players that, that aren't going to vibe, especially when you have a changeover in regime. There's always going to be players that just aren't going to vibe with the new guys, right? Uh, and so there might be some of that as well. Uh, but I, I think I think it, it begs the question as to, all right, what can change? What can realistically change to try to salvage the overall narrative here as it pertains to UH football? Well, I think first is the immediate, you know, interviewing of the play, especially, and you mentioned this kind of ties into that whole thing, right? There's usually a senior or a leadership uh, group in every football. You know, you have 185 scholarships, you've got about 105, 110 guys on the roster, right? So you pick about 10 guys and they've probably already picked this senior council kind of guys, whatever else. And those guys probably have a little bit more say in the direction of the program, but they also need to be maybe a liaison to David Matt so, so that he's hearing what's going on internally. Right. And, and, and then you might even think about having, you know, and I know the university of Hawaii has like little to no money. They're cutting people, not adding people, but there is a possibility if there is concern that there is a liaison, that there is a consultant that is directly, whether it's the University of Hawaii athletic director in charge of football, you know, there's one for maintenance, there's one for facilities, there's one for, you know, women's uh, sports, whatever it is, you know, how many athletic directors they have up there. One needs to now take the title of at least being liaison and getting a deeper dive, a deeper research into this program and the direction it's heading immediately. And um, I don't think that's too drastic because I'm not talking about even hiring a new person, but there has to be more communication. And then this communication, Kanoa, whether it's social media, whether it's regular media, has to be distributed to the fans because I think there's a concern from this fan base, whether this program's heading in the right direction, whether there is a cultural thing that's not appropriate for this state. Because I'm telling you, you can say football is the same at 129 other FBF schools. It's not. Because of our location, because of our history, because of our politics, because of our bureaucracy, it's different here. And you can ask Norm Chow that. You can ask mm -hmm. Fred Bon in that. And uh, you can ask June Jones and Nick Rolovich and people that actually love Hawaii, and they'll tell you it's different. But 
the love permeates, the passion permeates, the importance permeates to know that you're going to get paid less, to know that your facilities will not be of par, to know that you're going to put together coaching staff that can recruit Hawaii, that loves Hawaii, that understands the mainland, that understands college football. So it's not impossible, but man, are we at a position now that I don't think we've been in. And so how much, how much stock do you put into some of the disgruntled voices we, we heard on that? Uh, I don't know how much you got to, you know, we're privy to some of those conversations, Rich. I, I tuned in for part of it. I, I know Kanoa tuned in for part of it. It, it went on for quite a while. <laughs> and uh, so I don't know who was there the entire time, but how much, how much stock do you put into that? I know you've talked about, right? You've laid out a bit of a, a, a course of action, if you will, in terms of exit interviews and, and, and liaisons and things like that. But, you know, it kind of going back to earlier in our conversation where it's like, you know, this isn't only happening at Hawaii, like this, this, this turnover, disgruntled players leaving and whatnot. But we heard from Rolo recruits. We heard from uh, Todd Graham recruits in that. We heard from guys who transferred in uh, from other Division One FBS programs. Uh, as part of that, as well as some alums who played for past regimes, multiple past regimes. So how much do you take from that or how much credence do you give that as as you sort of make decisions and, and plan going forward? Well, I, I take the credence and, and, I, and I take the stance that I'm not going to make wholesale changes based upon any social media chat involving potentially disgruntled players. But I do, again, once again, think there is enough smoke to know that there's a potential fire. I, I, I do think there's enough uh, information out there that needs uh, urgent uh, type of action because, you know, this transfer portal thing and the day and age of these kids um, is, is so different than when I played or even when I coached or whatever else. But I do think that if you're not a player's coach, if you're not teaching these kids what they want to learn on the next level or to be successful or reach their genetic potential, these kids, they know what they're talking about. They know what others are getting in college football. They know uh, what their peers are going through in some other uh, institutions, whatever else. So, you know, there, there is smoke. And I, I think there's at least uh, a small kind fire, so to speak, if not a brush fire. And it needs to be examined very closely because the precariousness of this situation to me, and I'm not trying to overreact as well, mm -hmm. But I think that if you delay this into potentially into recruiting and potentially into structural changes, uh, then you may be seeing this program continue to decline because I think the fans need to see a positive direction. The local recruits, AJ Bianco, needs to see a positive direction. Uh, I, I think just recruiting in general, you can live off the transfer portal because you're going to sell Hawaii all day long. You're going to sell the fact that you know, this is a special place. And when they get here, they're going to be just amazed. But I'm talking about foundation building blocks for this program need to be addressed. Yeah, you know, you mentioned uh, AJ Bianco, who happened to be from what the indication was listening on that chat yesterday. Uh, but you're right. I think we're, we're, we're trying to address this while also maintaining a certain level of responsibility with regard to this because social media can be an echo chamber right and and we can sometimes falsely extract conclusions to certain issues based on reaction on social media which isn't necessarily always going to be accurate but i think what you said was absolutely on the nose there is some smoke here and so it would lead you to believe that there is something that is underneath 
the surface, what that is, to what extent the danger of that is, to what extent there needs to be a proactive approach taken. Uh, that's all stuff that, you know, is, is going to have to be decided upon by the powers that be within the institution, right? The administrators and all of that stuff. I think competitively speaking, what, what potentially complicates this discussion is that team that took the field in Laramie, Wyoming, that last week of the regular season, like that team could contend for a Mountain West championship. Like that team was pretty darn good in all phases. And while that quarterback is no longer going to be there, how much do we then have to buy into what went into, from a coaching schematic perspective, what went into creating that product in that last week, it makes it all the more sort of mind numbing and head scratching that they went through the midseason lull that they did. But that was the potential. We saw some indications of what the potential for this team was. Uh, how much credit do we give the coaching staff for that product? And how do we then weigh that against some of this smoke and things that might be happening under the surface that we're also hearing? Uh, that's a good question, because. That team now has lost the two best offensive linemen, Cole Laval and Eugene Pryor. That team has lost the best running back in terms of the day-day hunter. It's lost the best ultimate, you know, versatility guy in Calvin Turner. It's lost the best quarterback, I think, in this conference. And there's rumblings about Nick Mardner. Now, if that guy leaves, he's a Sunday guy too, right? So you're talking about, you know, losing Cortez Davis. You're talking about losing. Can this team recruit? This coaching staff, excuse me, can this coaching staff recruit? Because again, the thing that I think is the scariest thing to me is, is Ote Baker, is uh, Zacchaeus McKinney. I think Pete Tonga was a pretty good football player. Um, you know, with some of those tight ends, they were serviceable, whatever else. But these are transfer portal guys. These are Todd Graham's recruits. Now, this is going on the third year and you can wipe out that first year for COVID, but it still gave you an opportunity to recruit, go to the transfer portal, whatever else. Is this team, is this coaching staff, is the, uh, do they have the ability to secure an A.J. Bianco? Do they have the ability to find a Nick Mardner? Do they have the ability to get another quarterback of Chevron Cordero's? You know, that's maybe A.J. Bianco, a different type of quarterback. Don't get me wrong. And I don't want to put him in those shoes right away. But I think the future of this program is going to depend upon local recruits, mainland recruits, transfer portal, walk-on program. And then allowing these kids to play to their potential. And that's, you look at June Jones, you look at Nick Rolovich, whatever else. You saw Jared Smart get 1,100 yards receiving two years ago. You think that young man is happy right now with approximately 400 yards receiving when he had over the 1,000 mark two years ago? Do you think that Cole Laval became a better football player these last couple of years? I'm not sure. You know, Calvin Turner seemed to regress. Uh, Shevin regressed and you know people out there think I'm crazy for saying he's the best player in the league well he did regress in terms of accuracy decision making uh what it, what it was anticipatory uh control all those type of things but is this staff capable of I think schematically yes the answer is yes defensively special teams the jury is out because of how poor they played offensively I think everybody's in agreement that this was that 12th and 13th week of the season, what they were expecting for the first 11 games. And it didn't happen. And that's the biggest frustration. Will this offense moving forward be one that can score points and have consistency and uh, execute? And there's just so many questions moving forward because 
people seem tend to forget most of these players that were successful and that will continue to be successful were Nick Rolovich's guys. And and so I guess kind of on that too, right? Because I'm with Canola, right? There, there's or at least the thinking of the line where it's like the the last two weeks, this team looks so different. <laughs> So different from that UNLV game and some of the other games early in the season, San Diego State, San Jose State. If you want to bring up some of those. And just seeing that switch, seeing that offense go to a massively different level, like night and day, not just like gradual improvement or something's here, but like everything from play calling to execution to, to even, I mean, some of the lucky breaks. And so at the end of the day, under Todd Graham, they're 500 two years in, right? five and four last year, six and seven this year. Like that's on par with what Greg McMacken did. That's that's better than what Nick Rolovich did two years in. And I bring up those two guys in part because, you know, uh, especially McMacken coming off of a, a successful a season, yeah. right? And, and, you know, Rolo comes in uh, off of a, a losing streak, if you will, a, a few years, right? June comes in off of a, of, of a pretty moribund program as well. And so McMacken may be the most fair comparison in, in all of that. Um, and so is it, is that good enough? Right. Because you look at the history of Hawaii football and it's not like Hawaii's win bowl games on the mainland all the time. It's not like they're going to bowl games every single year. And so I I know we've got high expectations. There's nothing wrong with that here in Hawaii, but 500 after two years with a mainland bowl win, that's at least historically in this program, it's not bad. Yeah, beating Fresno the start of last season, beating them this year when they were nationally ranked, you know, playing tough against San Diego State when they still are nationally ranked. Uh, The win against Wyoming on the road hasn't happened since 1991. I I don't want to, you know, take this thing in one direction and don't think that there's some good from this program. But but I, I keep going back to if you asked anyone on that offensive team, anyone, what their expectations was, what their talent level was, what their production could have been, should have been. I, I think they'll all be disappointed. But I think if you ask Corey Bentley and Darius Moussa, they're going to go like, man, I love coming off the edge. I like the fact that we can hold the chalk last. We're really being taught incredible things by uh, Todd Graham, who's a, he's a phenomenal defensive coach, even though he lives by the sword, dies by the sword. I, I don't mind taking the ball away and give it back to the offense. He's going to give up some big plays. June Jones said it all the time. I don't care if they score, get the ball back to the offense. But, you know, the main thing is, you know, is, is I think that was exciting defensive football. And, and I think special teams was kind of a one-off anomaly. They, they'll get better. They're not going to have all the punt blocks and all the, you know, judgment on kicks and punts and all the other things that happened to them this year. So I, I do think Todd Graham's a good football coach. Don't get me wrong. I think he's organized. I, I think his resume speaks for himself. I, I think he made the biggest mistake he made was not allowing his son to have more experience around him. If he's going to name him the offensive coordinator, I, I think the, the, the question remains, is it the right fit? And I think fit is important in this particular job more so than maybe any others. Cause you got to know Hawaii, you got to understand and appreciate and respect and love it. And to me, it goes back to fit. It doesn't go back to Todd Graham being a good football coach because he is. Yeah, yeah it's, it, it's, it's sorry, sorry, Jordan. I, I just no. find that I think that question was was really on point because, um, yeah, this is such a tricky thing, right? Because you you can't just judge it based on the ink that's on the paper, right? There's nuance 
to this. And I, I think it's, it's made all the more complex by what we are seeing and hearing coming out of the program, coming out of the mouths of current players themselves. And so it's going to raise the antenna. It's, it's, it's going to make you ask questions as to what exactly is going on. And so the judgment is much more complicated than just, as, as Jordan was asking, you know, what's the win loss record? What about this win on against this team on the road? And uh, there's nuance to this. And, and so the, the conversation is, is different because of that and throwing obviously the sensitive time in the history of this program and the challenges that they're currently facing. Uh, wow. I mean, this, yeah. this is tough stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, if there is fire where there is smoke, right. And, and you figure out it's mainly centered around this offensive coaching staff, or, you know, again, Bo Graham got drafted in the first round. When you get drafted in the first round, it's because of the person that drafted you. That was Todd. So Todd has to, to me, has to live by that. Right. And there was other, you know, um, when Cordero was injured, you know, that, that freshman quarterback, you know, bless his soul, whatever else, he's no Chevron Cordero, but he came in and they beat Fresno, whatever else. I, I just think that if you're David Matlin right now and you do this, whatever is deep dig findings, whatever else, and you find there's a potential problem with what looks like a, a staff of offensive guys that resumes, maybe uh, they're going to be great coaches. I think Ali Terry, I think Marcus Davis, I know Dave is a great coach. They're going to get better this year if they're all together, whatever. Right. But I, but I think you have to say, Hey, this is what we found out, you know, uh, and, 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 and this has to be between those two people, Dave Matlin and, and Ty Graham. We think there may have to be some type of change structurally on offense. What's your feelings and why wouldn't we change this? And, and maybe that's all that needs to happen. But I'll, I'm going to tell you, there's no way that offensive team is going to line up next year with 70% of the talent they have this year. I don't care how good they do in the transfer portal. I don't care how good they do in junior college. I don't care how good they do with AJ Bianco being behind the center next year or Braden Shager. It's, it's going to be a dissipation in talent. And it has to be better coaching. And, and, you know, we met with Todd Graham how many times? And he basically alluded to there's no special teams coordinator. Maybe that needs to be changed. He basically alluded to he knows they were struggling offensively, schematically, whatever else. And we walked out of that meeting. I think a lot of us go like, he's going to do something. This guy's been around football a long time. Let's see what he does. And let's see what David Matlin does. And let's see what this program does. And uh, I think we're all hoping that there are some changes because, again, I – feel like I know so many people on the inside of this program and I've heard so many stories that it definitely deserves uh is it introspection or whatever you want to talk about but there, there needs to be some type of uh resolve coming out of, out of this football program yeah introspection is a good word I think uh for, for the, the thank you because sometimes on the broadcast I'll invent words you know we're talking <laughs> half hours, so you know you got to invent words sometimes to get through some of these games um <laughs> and so I ask you this, Rich. Like, uh, like instinctfully? Instinctfully, yeah. <laughs> it, it's in Webster's on a bridge 2022. You'll see it soon. Ah, in the abridged version, though, I think they cut it. That's the problem. <laughs> um, it, it, you're a coach. You, you, you've been a coach. You know coaches. How, and this isn't necessarily like a Todd Graham specific question. This is just like a general, like football coaches are of a certain mold they like structure. They like doing things their way, especially successful coaches who have done this for years, decades in Todd Graham's scenario, situation. How willing are coaches to change 
to evolve, to take some of that in and adjust their program if indeed there is a little bit more to the smoke, as you allude to, which I think is a great analogy because it really does seem like that, right? That We don't know. We don't know all that's burning underneath, what the embers are, but how willing are, you know, collegiate football coaches to adapting, to evolving, whatever it may be, whether it's personality, whether it's, you know, allowing a little more rope to players, whether it's shifting offensive, whatever it is. Is, is that a realistic thing to hope for? Well, in some cases, you know, these guys are the smartest guy in the room. They've been around and they know everything about football and not too many of them actually do know offense, defense, and special teams. But, but I think, look at Nick Saban. If Nick Saban would have stayed with the non-draftable quarterback and, and the offense that basically was three yards in a cloud of dust and run 21 personnel and West Coast offense, you, Steve Sarkeesian came in, Elaine Kiffin came in and changed the whole culture of offensive football in Alabama, which has redu- resulted in many more national championships as the game evolves, right? So, we're not talking about Todd Graham saying, like, I don't believe in an attacking defense. I don't believe in a, a zone downhill running play, set up the play action pass, you know, go vertical 10 to 14 times a game, da, 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 da. All the things he says, trust me, he says the right things. And, and he schematically, he's, a, he's just, like I said, he's a smart coach. And when you self-scout, Jordan, your, yourself, and you look at every aspect of your program, every year, I mean, we spend countless hours of how to get a two-hour practice correct, but you're really working on the offseason. How do I get this program in the right direction? So I would like to think that he can soften culturally and understand that Hawaii is a little different and, and become more of a player's coach if, if he's not. I think that he can potentially make some changes structurally whether it's just, it's just not bow in the box, but maybe bringing some more experience to this offensive staff. I think there's a lot of things he can do to make this program better. Um, and it remains to be seen. If he's set in his ways, then I think there's a potential for issues and problems with, you know, moving forward with this program. But if he's willing to change, like I think most people are, even the great ones, I think even Bill Belichick, when you talk to people in the program and the organization, he's a funny guy. He's witty. You know, Dave Aranda is a funny guy. He's witty. He may seem one way, but the team has to like you, respect you, to play for you. And that's every, that's the DBs with the DB coaches. That's the running backs with the running back coaches. That's almost, so you evaluate your staff, right? And you got to make some hard decisions. And that, if this staff comes back exactly the same as it was last year, if there's no change in this program, I, I, I don't see the fans being appeased. I don't see the football, you know, guys that know football thinking that this is a successful formula moving forward. And, 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 and I think that there's problems, but I, I do think let's give this guy credit. Will there be change? We don't know, but should there be change? I think most people, and I think Todd Graham thinks so as well. And it'd be interesting to hear it, you know, from the horse's mouth. Yeah. It would show this at least um, to a certain degree, absorption of what is being talked about, right? It it would mean that there is an ear being provided to listen to some of the feedback. I I think that that would be a sign or an indication uh, of a little evolution that Jordan's alluding to there. Uh, I think one of the other silver linings is this response that we've seen in the community, right? Whether it be people that are angry or that are calling for change, at least they're people that are caring about the program. I think we're seeing this, that discussion on Twitter spaces yesterday was a sign that 
people care about this program. And, and, and that to me is something that is worthy of acknowledgement unto itself, because that's the worst place you could be right through COVID and all of these other challenges. If you get to the point where there is an indifference regarding the program, good or bad, in bad, in better times or worse times, that's when uh, you are on the precipice, I think, of, of ultimate failure. So, so I, I've at least extracted some positivity out of this overwhelming response, even if it is because of some turbulence that we as, as University of Hawaii, uh, you know, broadcasters and, and, and covers of this program, uh, as well as fans uh, that we've been now introduced to. Yeah. And, and, you know, when we do exit this meeting, I think that fans that are passionate are great. I think that fans that care uh, about this football program, and I, and I still think that they're out there in droves, you know, from Hilo to Hanalei, so to speak. But, uh, but I do think people need, like, the, the, the administration needs to grab a 747, I'll give it a charter or Hawaiian Air, and take all those people that work for the football program and show them Colorado State, show them uh, Las Vegas, show them Wyoming, show them, t- I'm not even talking Pac-12 here, I'm talking Mountain West programs that have the alignment of government, that have the funding of government, that have the private sector that doesn't just care, but they actually pay to have a great Division One program. And then the season ticket holders, whether they're watching Spectrum and they're buying the season ticket package, which gives some around $3 million to this football program, are they buying season tickets and going to the games and hopefully ancillary parking and, 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 and food and, and, and apparel and all these other things. It, it's not enough to say you care. It's more than that. You have to do something. And I'm talking about from season ticket holders all the way to the, the local banking institutions, whatever else. We need to do more to save this program, to get this program. Because Todd Graham, Trust me, Nick, Noam Chow, you can talk to June Jones, you can talk to Nick Rolovich. This program would be a heck of a lot better if we did have a training facility, if we did have, you know, uh, a training table, if we did have what all these other Division I programs have. And, and it's all of us. And if you really care about this program, I'm tired of hearing about people saying they care about the program. What are they doing to help this program? And I think these type of debates are things that need to be uh explain to, to people and we need to educate the masses in terms of what a division one football program is supposed to be like because Todd Graham's not wrong Noam Chow's not wrong June Jones is not wrong Nick Rolovich is not wrong and uh, this place could be so much better yeah and it happens to be coinciding with a, a time where we are seeing college coaches elsewhere leave big time programs to other big time programs for hundred million dollar contracts I mean uh, what a world we are living in Rich Miano yes yes it is but that said uh, the world is a lot better every time we get a chance to chat with you our resident football guru Rich we appreciate the time man always a pleasure talking with you had a great time with you guys on the air this season for Spectrum Sports so uh, hopefully we'll be able to run it back in 2022. Yeah I thought you know the broadcast in terms of having Jordan on the game on crew and obviously working with you and we, we miss Robert and he was a special talent but man I can't say it enough not to patronize you bro but Robin Amo would have been proud the amount of times you set me up and hopefully that you know I spiked a few balls to the floor but sometimes they got returned and I invented new words and we had fun oh yeah we had fun in the end that's for sure all right Rich you take care man thanks Rich okay let's have a good day all right big thanks once again to Rich Miano Uh, So we'll try to uh, return to a little bit of normalcy here for our show and end things the way we normally do in our usual post game. 
best and worst brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii, Maui's premier full service refuse company offering various sizes of dumpsters and roll off containers for commercial construction and residential use. Family owned and operated with over 40 years of service to the Maui community, Waste Pro Hawaii is committed to customer service and responsible waste management. Visit wasteprohawaii.com for services information. All right. Maybe we start with the worst so we can end on a more positive note yeah, with our best. Yeah. All right. So uh, you want me to go first? Uh, sure. Either way. All right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll deliver my worst here. And that's uh, very simple. The Major League Baseball announced the lockouts, which started yesterday because the latest collective bargaining agreement expired at the beginning of the month. So here we are again in one of those <laughs> standard traditional tug of war battles over money between the ownership of the league and the players. There's so much money that's that's being made everywhere in the game. Um, the league is being so disingenuous, right, with Rob Manfred uh, trying to suggest that this lockout is over issues where the ownership is trying to create a more competitive landscape across baseball. That's never been the case, right? It is the, the least equitable sport when it comes to revenue sharing and you have the big markets and the small markets. And I mean, there's a chasm between those. And so, uh, so very disingenuous on the part of the league. But that's my worst, just because here we go again, Major League Baseball a labor dispute uh, leading to a lockout and hopefully we get through this sooner rather than later. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all of those things, right? It really is. And it's just billionaires and millionaires getting mad at each other and we're locking this thing out. And, and um, it's, it's a real bummer because I, I think baseball is in a position where they are full of young stars that they can capitalize on and sort of bolt in to this new age and they've, they've seemingly started to embrace the digital media age that is major league baseball uh, embracing that and, and starting to promote the game and these young players individually uh, a little bit better and trying to win over the younger, dem younger demographic. Um, and you know what won't win over the younger, de younger demographic, not playing baseball games and locking this thing out <laughs> like 1994. All we're going to get is another steroid induced rebound from the league like that's that's what we're heading towards we're heading towards another you know steroid boom where it's like we got to win over the fans we need more home runs that's right just i hope that's not the case we already but, have enough home runs but that was the case out, so. that actually was yeah, the yeah, case yeah, so, yeah. yeah all right what's your worst repeats itself yeah mine <laughs> mine's is a little more just like uh more a little more flippant um adrian peterson signed with the seahawks yesterday the three and eight seahawks and adrian peterson who's on who signed with the the Titans who love to run the football and he couldn't really cut it there. It just sounded sort of seems like two washed up entities <laughs> kind of just trying to, to rekindle something, right? Like I've, I've developed into a bit of Seahawks fan, spent a lot of time in Seattle, been to a few games, love Russell Wilson, big fan, uh, pretty big Pete Carroll fan, but I think the time has kind of run out there. Like it probably makes sense to make a move. Uh, but it just seems like this real, like, what are we doing here? Like, like both, just you know desperation it just reeks of desperation from yeah. both parties pete carroll to oklahoma is that uh, what you're uh, possibly throwing out there here potentially or or something like that a return to college football they throw the football way too much there for pete to, <laughs> he's, he's, he's he's stuck in his ways man i love pete but boy yeah he's he has not evolved like we talked like rich talked about nick saban evolving on the offensive side of the football pete pete just hasn't hasn't quite embraced that yet no, hey, he's still chewing the same piece of gum here uh, going on That's decades right. now. I mean, so, he yeah. gave us Norm Chow. So, <laughs> you know, it worked for a while. It did. But then it then it then it stopped working. Wow. You gotta kind of adapt. That is some incredible synergy on your part to be able to bridge 
this worst segment of the show with the rest of the discussion uh, on the podcast. That's why you're a brilliant co-host. Uh, that's why you're on uh, <laughs> Sometimes 38. It works. That's why you're Some... on 38 different podcasts. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> All right, All right, what's your best? What's your All best? right, you'll flip it over. But you're my best, man. But uh, here's the best for the show, uh, and that is honors for the Rainbow Wahine Volleyball Program. Brooke Van Sickle named the Big West Conference Player of the Year. It was pretty awesome. A sixth-year, super-duper senior, transfer from Oregon, strong ties to Hawaii. Her dad played at UH Volleyball. Her mom was a star at Hawaii Pacific University. Uh, she was basically a defensive specialist role player at Oregon, transfers to Hawaii, and turns into a superstar and a conference player of the year led the conference in points per set average so congratulations to her robin amo getting named big west conference coach of the year and then you had amber igd skyler williams and the freshman setter kate lang all named to the big west conference first team the rainbow wahine of course winning the big west for the second straight season they are scheduled to play mississippi state nationally ranked out of the uh, SEC in the opening round of the NCAA tournament in Seattle tomorrow. Mississippi State actually finished second place in the conference behind the defending national champ, Kentucky. Uh, so good luck to them. But that's my best because, uh, hey, look, they were up against very tough circumstances, right? All the Big West Conference teams were because they didn't play any volleyball last year. Just about every opponent they played throughout the season did play volleyball as recently as earlier in 2021. And so they were behind the eight ball, so to speak, and they had some catching up to do. And I think uh, Robin Amo save the final night of the regular season five set loss uh, to UC Santa Barbara. I think Robin Amo had this team playing its best volleyball when it mattered the most down the stretch. And hopefully they can make some noise in the tournament. Yeah, that's right. Uh, really solid season. Really, really solid season, particularly after, you know, the slow start in the non-conference in large part because they hadn't played in two years. Uh, Well-deserved honors for everybody across the board. Those middles are good, by the way. Oh, man, man, they're fun to watch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they, it, it, didn't, it didn't really turn into what we expected it to turn into on the last day of the regular season against the Gauchos. Uh, they had a little bit of the last laugh bragging rights, but uh, that's all right. Uh, Hawaii will take the conference trophy and the NCAA tournament bid uh, compared to a couple of losses or would be wins against UCSB any day of the week. What's your best? Yeah, absolutely. I'm also going with some Hawaii athletics. We like to, uh, we like to balance out the scales a little bit, right? Um, recent signing day, uh, late last month for, for a lot of sports, including swim and dive. And my cousin, Isabel Moraz, that's right, is whose grandmother is from Lanai, signed with the UH swim and dive team. She's out of Davis High School in Northern California, native of Vacaville. Uh, and she's on, she's going to be a scholarship swimmer at the University of Hawaii. Um, I'd like to claim a little credit as, as side recruiter in all of this, turn down some schools on the East Coast, some schools from some bigger conferences as well. Uh, as the Ivy League. So, um, you know, if, if anybody wants to, to send some credit on the press release when they finally put that out from uh, Hawaii Athletics. Um, yeah, my cousin is. She's coming to swim in Hawaii. It's pretty cool stuff. That is pretty darn cool. And uh, congratulations. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a cool connection there. That's our best and worst brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii, Maui owned, Maui operated for Maui's people. Big thanks to Daryl McBride Jr. and Rich Miano. This was a bit of a hefty episode, but uh, obviously a lot of big news here this week as it pertains to UH football. Uh, so I uh, hope you were able to enjoy some of it. Uh, hit us up on Twitter at Kanoa Leahy, at Jordan Helly, or at Talk Sports 808. Jordan, have a good weekend. Talk to you again soon, bro. Thanks, man.